Hello, 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 and welcome to How to Win Friends and Influenza, a podcast all about medicine. My name's Lily, and I'm your host. Thank you so much to our listeners for all your support, because you're the reason this show keeps running. This show is all about giving you insider information into a life in medicine, what it's like, what different specialties are like, and all the options out there. A little story from T.D. Jakes might be a little bit illustrative. Not everyone really knows their specialty, so just imagine you're out dress shopping, and if you don't know what dress shopping is like, just use your imagination. (laughs) So you're out dress shopping, you're in a shop, and the lady walks up to you and she's like, you know, what do you want? What are you looking for? And you're just saying, no, thank you, I'm fine, I'm just looking for a dress, but I'm happy to just look around. But she won't leave you alone. And she just says, you know, we've got this whole rack of dresses over here. Why don't you just come take a look? One of them might be what you want. And you say, no, no, I'm okay. I'm just looking. But the lady still persists. And she says, well, what colors do you want? What style do you want? What exactly are you after? And you say, well, I'll know it when I see it. And that's kind of what the search for a specialty can be like for some people. You might know what you already want to do. Or you might just have a vague idea and you might know the direction you want, but you aren't quite there yet. So it's all about finding out what options are there, what specialties are there, and maybe, just maybe, when you stumble across your dream one, something will click and you'll know it when you see it. So that's what this podcast is about. And on that note, because we're talking about dresses, dresses are sometimes red, and red is meant to be the color of anger or love. And if you ask anyone who's not a neurologist, then you feel love with your heart. And that leads us to cardiology. And that's why we've got a great cardiologist on the show today, Dr. Chris. So welcome. Thank you very much. Awesome. So Dr. Chris is a really, really interesting guy. He's a self-described crazy sports fanatic. He's into the Rabbitohs and he's done some really cool things like develop an entire cricket tournament for his three kids in his backyard. And that ran for a couple of summers. He uh, says that he doesn't know how to turn on a computer, but in his defense, he happens to have an order of Australia and is a cardiology consultant. So he's a great person for us to learn from today. So Dr. Chris, I'm going to start off by asking, what is cardiology? Well, cardiology is a very broad uh, specialty area and basically covers any diseases related to the heart. They might be heart muscle problems, they might be heart rhythm problems, they might be blood vessel problems related to the heart, or they could even be congenital heart conditions where children or babies are born with heart conditions. So it's a real big scope of diseases, um, and uh, it's a wonderful specialty. Yeah, and it's really crazy that one organ can have so many things go wrong with it, and that can really affect someone's life. So how did you get into this interesting specialty? Well, actually, the truth is that when I started as an intern, I really wanted to be a gastroenterologist. Ah. And I organized a gastroenterology term very early on in my internship. And I realized after a few days that you end up going home with poo on your shoes. (laughs) And I thought, I don't really want to do this for the rest of my life. Um, So I was looking into the different specialties during my training. And cardiology was attractive to me, mainly because there's a lot you can do in cardiology to treat disease. There's a lot you can do in cardiology to prevent disease. And it caters for all different personalities as well. So if you're a gung-ho invasive person, you can stick tubes in people's groins for the rest (laughs) of your life. You can be a non-invasive person and do echoes and MRIs. You can be a genetics person where you look at the genetic basis of heart diseases. So there's a big scope within the specialty of um, different aspects of cardiology which would suit different personalities. And so that was, I guess, the, the, the pathway to cardiology. And I think the other thing I should say is that, you know, mentors are really important in your career. And I had some really great mentors early on who were cardiologists who 
who taught me a lot about medicine and, and the, the, the profession of medicine, but also attracted me to cardiology as well. So it's a long-winded answer, but there's a lot of aspects to cardiology and very attractive on many different fronts. Yeah, and let's break that down bit by bit. So I'm really curious, if your mentors happen to do, let's say, psychiatry, do you think you might have been swayed towards that? Or do you think you're, well, this sounds terrible, but your heart was set on cardiology? It's possible, but you learn things about patient-doctor relationships, and that's true whether it's psychology or, or cardiology or gastroenterology. So you learn things from your mentors about how to manage patients and look after patients, not the actual details. Um, psychiatry, when I did my term in psychiatry, all the psychiatrists seemed a bit weird to me. So I actually <laughs> thought I'd just steer clear of that because yeah. I might end up a bit crazy myself. <laughs> And, um, and chose cardiology. So you learn a lot from mentors, which doesn't have to be specialty specific, yeah. uh, but about principles of looking after patients. Yeah, and it's always useful to have people you can talk to. And that's kind of what this show is about, that we um, have people who can give great advice. And it's really good for people to learn from. Now, another part of your answer was that um, anyone, you know, with any sort of personality, you've got a space in cardiology. So are there any common characteristics of people who choose cardiology? Um, they're usually very handsome males or attractive <laughs> females. No, no, I'm kidding. Um, the, I guess um, uh, cardiology is a blend of an academic specialty as well as a clinical specialty. So um, it attracts a whole range of people. There are the pure clinicians who are just brilliant and with a, you know, a laying of a stethoscope on a chest can work out the whole diagnosis. You, know, you have pure clinicians but there's also a lot of growing area of academic cardiologists as well who split their time up into sort of half clinical care and half research or, or that sort of thing. And so there's not one, I don't think there's one stereotype in cardiology. Um, I think it's a, it's a range of stereotypes and I think that's what attracts people to cardiology. It's also a fairly clean specialty and you don't have any poo on your shoes or any wee or anything like that. So um, I think people like the idea of just having a stethoscope to listen to the heart and then go on to further investigations. Yeah, although I do have to wonder sometimes, you know, if people don't clean their stethoscopes, that could be a harbour for bacteria. But thankfully, that's why we have those wipes everywhere. It certainly is. And we always wipe our stethoscopes very regularly, but probably our ties are even worse for the men. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a great specialty and very rewarding from mm. a patient perspective. Mm. And another interesting thing that you talked about was you decided when you were already a doctor, so you were in your intern year, and that was when you started more definitively going for what specialty you wanted. So do you think it's not necessary then to decide from day one of medical school, I'm going to do this? Oh, I would actually argue against that. I think you should be open to all different aspects of medicine. Um, I knew fairly early on, even during um, my medical student days, that I didn't want to do surgery. I thought it was quite a hard journey and, and a tough journey. Um, and you'll probably get blood everywhere in that sort of And probably get blood everywhere, very messy. <laughs> you have to take your suit off and whatever. Um, but I was interested in things like paediatrics yeah. uh, for a while there, obstetrics and gynecology and, and medicine as well. Mm. Um, but fairly early on in my resident days, uh, internal residency, you had to sort of choose a pathway pretty early on. Um, and so medicine was definitely my pathway or physician training. Um, but I certainly would keep my mind open to all options because you never know what will attract you until you actually get some exposure to it. So in a lot of the medical degrees at the moment, you don't see paediatrics and things till a bit later on in mm. your degree. And, and so wait for those moments and, and uh, 
and, and absorb them and see if you like it or not. Yeah, and do you think there's a, a limit by which someone should decide? Because there is a counter-argument. If you wait too long, it's going to make your training a bit tougher. You'll have spent longer. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you should make a decision probably by your internal early residency years. It's not absolutely compulsory that you make a decision, but it will help you guide which terms you get, which mm. sort of training you start to do. So I'd say, <clears throat> excuse me, intern year or early residency years are probably the times to make a decision and, and go from there. Okay, and speaking of training, what sorts of terms are good for people considering cardiology? I, I found obviously doing a cardiology term is excellent. <laughs> that um, would help, but, yes. But respiratory terms are very important as well. Um, and and neurology is actually quite an interesting term as well. I mean, neurology to me is an extremely academic specialty, um, but fascinating also. And the, the links between the brain and the heart at a number of levels, both you know, direct links, you know, vagus nerve, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. but also uh, links in terms of things like takasubo, cardiomyopathy, where you know a sudden uh, anxious event can lead to a heart that dilates you know, the brain leading to a heart sort of abnormality is fascinating. So I think respiratory is a good term, neurology is a good term. And my little secret is, uh, even if you don't want to do surgery, do, some, do at least one surgery or two surgery terms because you'll end up doing a lot of the medical care of the patients because mm. the surgeons will do the surgery, but you'll look after the pneumonias and the DVTs and the bleeding problems and that sort of thing. So you actually learn a lot of medicine during a surgical term. So I think you get something out of every term and, and I think that's uh, beneficial. I wouldn't worry too much if you don't get all the perfect terms. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of benefit to being open-minded. Even if you know what specialty you want to end up, there's a lot you can learn from every area of medicine. Absolutely. And if I can move forward you know, a couple of decades since my internship, you know, even though I'm a cardiologist, I collaborate closely at a research level with neurologists, mm. um, with paediatricians and a number of other congenital heart disease sort of people. Uh, so a number of different specialties as well. You know, linking a good example is, you know, sleep apnea, which is a pure respiratory problem. But we now know there's a lot of links between sleep apnea and heart disease. And so there's, there's always room for collaboration and learning more. Uh, and I think that, you know, you should never think you're going to stop learning at a certain point because you learn something every day uh, in medicine. And that's one of the beautiful things about medicine. You, you're always learning. Mm, difficult but beautiful things about difficult medicine. Difficult but beautiful. <laughs> Spot on. Now, that's an interesting segue to the work that you're doing now. So I understand today is the first day back at clinics and you also do a lot of research. So what sorts of tasks are you up to these days? Yeah, so I have the best of both worlds. So I'm a what they call a physician scientist or a, or a clinician specialist. Mm. So I spend about half my life seeing patients and my focus area is in young people with heart disease and specifically inherited heart diseases. So diseases where a fault in a gene that the person is born with leads to disease. And so my clinical work covers those areas. So things like cardiomyopathies, uh, inherited arrhythmia syndromes, those sorts of things. Um, but also I spend the other half of my life running a research team which focuses on these aspects of inherited heart disease from discovering new genes that cause disease to clinical aspects of disease, follow-up studies, uh, and even public health measures to try and prevent sudden death in our communities. So I have, I'm blessed with a role at the moment which is, really covers both the academia and research as well as the clinical work, and that makes my day-to-day -day life really exciting. 
So this morning I spend my time uh, looking at gels and cells and things like that. By one o'clock I chair the Department of Cardiology meeting and at two o'clock I see patients all afternoon with these inherited heart conditions. So in one day I've gone from cells and genes to, to treating patients with heart disease. So it's awesome. Yeah, it sounds really exciting, really varied. Are there any disadvantages to that? Like, do you ever get confused? Oh, no, what am I doing today? I've got a couple of things on my plate. No, not, not so much. I think what I would say is that it is very challenging because you're sort of doing 50% clinical, 50% mm. research, and you're often competing with people who are doing 100% research yep. or 100% clinical. Um, but the way we've worked it out is that... Um, yeah, the whole, uh, the overarching theme of everything I do is inherited heart diseases, genetic heart diseases. So um, it all ties in together. So I roughly know what I'm going to be doing every day. <laughs> but having said that, if we talk about the research side of things, you know, you never know every morning when you wake up what that gene result will show you mm. in the particular patient. Yeah. So you may discover a new gene in a disease, a new treatment in disease. And that's the, the, the amazing part of research, that there is that unpredictability of what you're going to find. Yeah. And how do people figure out if they want to do, let's say, 25% research, 50% research, or maybe 0% research or 100%? How do yeah. they work out that balance between clinical and research? Well, I think the first step is to get a taste of research. And I think every medical person should do research, even if it's for a six-week project or a summer scholarship or a an honours project or mm. whatever it might be, or a clinical project, a research project during your clinical training, you, everyone should be exposed to a little bit of research to see what it's all about. You may not want to do it ever again, but at least you're exposed to it. So when you read a journal article in the years to come, you can sort of say, yeah, I understand that method. Yeah, I understand what they're looking for. I know what that hypothesis is. So I think everyone should be exposed to research. And so I would encourage every medical student, every early trainee to do a bit of research. Even if it's not a structured program, go to one of your um, supervisors or mentors or um, consultants and say, do you have a little project for me that I can do? Once you've done that and you have a passion for research, mm. then it really is an individual decision whether you do 50-50 or 80-20 yeah. or whatever you do. Uh, and that usually works itself out. You sort of work out what's the clinical load and then what's the research load and then um, sort of work that out. I have to say, if you're not doing at least 30 to 40% of research, it's sort of hard to maintain. So it's hard to do sort of 5% of research and 95% clinical because right. the research will disappear. Yeah. Um, but certainly be exposed to it. Uh, I mean, a, uh, an example, my exposure was in uh, my first year of, as a registrar in cardiology. I did a very small project, an echo-based project on looking at changes in thickening of the heart muscle over time in cardiomyopathy patients. The most simple study you could ever do. But I got a little paper out of it. I got a presentation out of it. And it exposed me for the first time to a research study. And uh, so that was the first sort of step. So strongly encourage everyone to have a crack at a bit of research during their training, at, whether it's as a medical student or as a clinician. Yeah, and it's a good moral there because if you never try, you never know. Nobody wants to live with regrets. So it's all about, you know, attempting things. Otherwise, you'll never know what you could have done. Spot on. Yeah. Now, Dr. Chris, I have to say I'm a little bit sceptical of your maths because you say you do half clinical, half research, but I know you also do some teaching. You've got a big love for sports. You've got a bit of family time on there. I feel like that probably adds up to more than 100%, but let's go with it anyway. What are your hours like at the moment? 
Well, I'm pretty uh, – my goal every day is to go home and have dinner with my family. Mm. Uh, I've got three kids uh, and a wife and my, my, my goal is to get home at a reasonable hour where we can eat together. Good, yeah. So I usually start my day at about 7 o'clock. I get to work by about 7, 7.30 and I usually leave by about 6 o'clock. So um, uh, that's sort of my average day. Um, but I do try and keep my weekends pretty free. Um, I minimise any on-call that I do. I've made that uh, discussion with the department and so I do very little on-call. And I'm not an interventionist, so I don't have to come in in the middle of the hour to <laughs> unblock an artery. So I've made those decisions mm. to allow for a good work-life balance. And, yeah. uh, I mean, you know, we all know, all the listeners know that work-life balance is essential in medicine. Um, otherwise, you, no one can work 16-hour days or 12-hour days non-stop and have no leisure activities. Um, I also have an Apple Watch and I try and close my rings every day. So the rings are for, you know, exercise right. and standing and yeah. a movement. Uh, and so that's my little encouragement to make sure I get a bit of exercise every day as well. Yeah, so keeping good habits to stay healthy. I think so. I mean, the Heart Foundation tells you to exercise for 30 minutes a day, five days a week. So I try and keep to that at some level. Yeah, setting a good example for people. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. You can't tell your patients to do that without doing it yourself. Yeah, that, that could be a little bit ironic. <laughs> okay. Now, work-life balance is something that people often aspire for, but the truth is that you can't have work-life balance all the time because before exams, before certain deadlines, there might be a bit of work-life sort of out of balance. So at what point did you um, feel that you were able to strike this balance? For example, was it during the training or after the training? I think it takes time um, and there will be certainly oscillations in your work-life balance and there'll be sometimes where there'll be more work than more life. Um, but I think you learn to realise how important it is to have those leisure times and times away from work because not only are they good for relaxation and, and making you feel good, you actually function better when you go back to work. So you're actually more productive when you study again, when you go mm. back to work again, when, you've, when you're well rested. So it's not just the rest for what you've done, but it's also looking ahead to yeah. being, being more productive when you get back to yeah, work. being sustainable. Sustainable, exactly. So I think it sort of comes as, as things go along. I mean, if I'm totally honest with you, during my medical student years, um, there was no really work-life balance. Holidays were holidays and they were great, but during term it was pretty busy and right. a lot of cramming and things. Uh, but once you get to your intern year and, and beyond, uh, I think things can balance out a bit better. And I think over the years, I've seen it sort of happen in the last 15 years, I think you know, the shifts and the appreciation of work-life balance for early trainees and is a lot better. Um, okay. Similarly, a lot better for women in, the, in medicine as well. So there are, I mean, it's not perfect, but there's been good advances in the last sort of five to 10 years to make that work-life balance work a bit better. Okay, that's really good news. Now let's talk about the training pathway for cardiology. How do people get on? What sorts of things do they need to apply? And how many years does it typically take? Yeah, I mean, as, as a minimum, I mean, you go through your internship and your residency, get into a registrar position, and then sit the exams for the physician training. Um, and then once you've done that or in the process of doing that, you should be building relationships with whatever specialty you're interested in. So for cardiology, for example, you know, you might want to let the head of department know that you're interested in cardiology fairly early on. You might want to do, a, as I said to you earlier, you know, an audit or a short review article mm -hmm. or something in, in that specialty, whether it's cardiology or not. 
That way you've got a bit of a track record with the department. You've got a track record in terms of your CV. And so when it comes time to the training positions, you pass your exams and you want to do cardiology training or any other training position, you want to be a little bit ahead of the group. And so being ahead of the group means have, you know, having a paper, having a presentation at a national meeting, mm-hmm. um, knowing the department, you know, um, being involved in activities in the department. All those little things make a difference because in the end they want somebody who they can rely on to look after the patients that they love. Yeah. And uh, if you're known to them and have a bit of a track record, that helps a lot. Okay. And should people be concerned about what hospital they go to or does it not really matter? I, for cardiology, I think it doesn't matter for general training. Um, I mean, there are some specialties where very specifically it would be better to be at one hospital or another. Um, I had the, the blessing of being at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, which is a wonderful hospital for all specialties, basically. Um, and it's not really until you get further into your career that you might sort of subspecialize in a hospital that has a particular subspecialty area for your mm-hmm. area of interest. So. You might be training in respiratory, but then you might want to sub-train in cystic fibrosis or asthma, which might guide you to another hospital or more specialised hospital. But generally, we're very blessed in Sydney, especially in the Sydney metropolitan area, to be, you know, have some wonderful hospitals. A good example in cardiology is if you want to do heart transplantation cardiology, there's only one place to do it, and that's St Vincent's Hospital. But for your general training, I think it doesn't really matter. Okay. Now, speaking of subspecialties, is it necessary for people to choose a subspecialty or could they be a general cardiologist for life? Oh, they can absolutely be a general cardiologist for life. Personally, I'd find that extremely boring <laughs> um, and I'd want more than just seeing coronary disease patients every day, five days a week, you know, every week of the year. Um, so, but that's certainly an option. You could do general cardiology. I think it's fairly rare for that to happen. I think most cardiologists you know, have a little bit of a hospital attachment so they can do sort of more acute and up-to-date sort of work. They might have some rooms. They might do some research. Um, so it's usually a combination of a few aspects of, of uh, their professional life that they combine in cardiology. Okay. And what are the options? Can people work in private hospitals, something else? Yeah. I mean, generally speaking, it's like every other specialty in the sense that you can work in a public hospital most cardiologists work in a public hospital, work sometime in a private hospital, um, and, and there's rooms as well available. So there's all sorts of options. I think in many specialties, there are things you can do which you can divvy up into sort of a half a day. Mm. So you can do a half a day of caths, so you can do a half a day of echo reporting, or you can do half a day of MRI studies, or half a day of whatever, private rooms. Um, so you can break up your week into sort of 10 half days. Uh, and then work out how you want to make those 10 half days work. Yeah, so introducing a lot of variety, which is what people want. I think so. I think, you know, I tell my kids, my kids are late teenagers, and I say to them, you know, whatever you choose in your life to do in your work, Mm. you've got to be in a job where you wake up every morning and want to go to work. If you don't want to go to work in the mornings, you should change your job. So I think medicine, medical people are very lucky because we can shape our work. Um, once you get to the consultant level or d- just before the consultant level, you can choose to do this and that and, and a bit of rooms and a bit of intervention and whatever. So we do have that ability to – and or we can even take a half a day off a week and play golf, mm. you know. Uh, so there's all those options available. And I think that's what is attractive about medicine spe- especially, that you do have that flexibility in guiding what you're going to do each week. 
Yeah. Now, speaking of having a great passion for medicine, doing what you love. Now, I've heard you speak in seminars before, and I know that one of the big things that you're a proponent of was putting defibrillators in public places, for example, your son's school. So that sounds awesome to me. And it was obviously something you could pursue because you were very passionate about it. So it's a bit of a loaded question here because I've already mentioned a great achievement. But you personally, what do you think has been one of your best achievements in your career? I think um, whenever you can translate your work into changing people's lives, I Mm. think is an achievement. I think clinicians do that almost every day. You know, you treat someone with heart failure, with pulmonary edema, and they Mm. go out of hospital three days later. You know, that's an achievement. Um, I, I guess if I had to choose, you know, one or two, I guess the, the main one, I have a particular interest in sudden death in young people. You know, why do young people drop dead on, you know, on football fields and, and that sort of thing? And, and we recently published a, a large prospective study in the New England Journal of Medicine, you know, leading the world in our understanding yeah. of the genetics and the causes of sudden death in young people. Um, and so going along with that... Um, you know, the easy way to try and prevent sudden deaths in our community is to teach everybody to do CPR mm. and secondly, to have defibrillators everywhere. They're, they're the no-brainers in, in, in that prevention strategy. You're not curing disease, you're not stopping the cardiac arrest happening, but you've got measures in place to prevent them dying suddenly. So my two big things at a community level have been to undertake programs where everyone in Australia, every Australian knows how to do CPR. It's a life-saving you know, action. And we all know that, you know, if I in the middle of this interview had a cardiac mm. arrest in this office, my chances of survival are you do giving me CPR and finding the defibrillator, which is just outside the door. No uh, just in case. <laughs> and, um, and, and defibrillating my heart. Yeah. As you all know, every minute that passes at a cardiac arrest, your chance of survival drops by about 15%. Mm. So by five minutes, you basically, you know, 75% chance that even if you survive, you're going to have um, neurological problems. So CPR is important. And then the second was um, in defibrillators, and particularly defibrillators in New South Wales schools. Um, One of my families that I look after lost their 16-year-old son in the schoolyard. And as part of their grieving process, um, they raised money to buy a defibrillator for that school because they didn't have a a defibrillator in that school. And um, when they presented it to the principal, the principal Mm -hmm. said, we can't accept the defibrillator. And I couldn't believe it. I'd never heard of this before. And they said, because there are laws in place which they're too dangerous to use. You might shock yourself. The teachers might get stressed from using the devices, etc. So the family came to me and told me the story. I didn't believe it. And I, mm. I checked and it was true. So to cut a long story short, that was a little passion of mine to make sure that never happens again. And I ended up meeting up with Mike Baird, who was the New South Wales Premier, yep. one-on-one to discuss this and, and he didn't he couldn't believe it was a rule as well. And so the rule the law was reversed and so schools can now have defibrillators. So things like that make me very happy because hopefully the next time a young kid or a parent dropping off a child at a school or whatever it might be has a cardiac arrest, at least they have a chance of survival. Um, so things like that are sort of on top of what you do every day, because I think you mm. every medical you know person does wonderful things for their patients every day. But on top of that, things like that are really rewarding and, and, um, and um, you know, you're contributing to society. And I think most people that go into medicine, contrary to what a lot of people think, I think a lot of people go into medicine not because of the money, because mm. you could be going in, into business and earn a lot more money. Without going through um, medical school. Without going through <laughs> medical school. 
Um, they do it because they love looking after patients and mm. making a difference in the world. And I think that's, that's really important. Yeah, so that's a really awesome story. It's a story of firstly being able to change New South Wales law with a good achievement and also being able to really make an impact on your patients. And it's true that if you wanted to earn money and wear a tie, there are other careers out there. So that's not the only thing about medicine. So it's awesome when you can really help patients, which is what people get in this for. So speaking of patients, are the interactions you have with your patients generally acute, sort of one-off, or do you have long-lasting relationships with them? Yeah, so because of the nature of my work, which is in genetic heart diseases, mm. um, these are conditions that are present, you know, the gene is present from birth or yeah. from conception, um, but the patients usually present in their teenage years or in their 20s. So I get to sort of watch these kids grow up. I see them have their own children. Their children will have a 50% chance of having the same disease. So you end up learning about the whole family. So a lot of my patients are long-standing patients, mm. Uh, and I've seen their kids and, and uh, I hate to say it, but as I get older, I'm starting to see their grandkids as well. Um, but it's beautiful because you're part of their family. They, yeah. they see you as part of your family. They invite you to their Christmas parties. They, you know, I don't know to go, but, you know, they, you are part of the family. Yeah. And so that's one of the other benefits of the particular area you choose. In inherited heart disease, by definition, it's families. Mm. And so we look after families all the time. Uh, and it's extremely rewarding. Yeah. Now, I am a bit curious, if their symptom is possible sudden death, how did they get alerted to their genetic condition before they come to you? Yeah, so sadly, a lot of families come to us after the sudden death has occurred in the young oh. person, which is a horrible situation. And, you know, I'll be happy when the day comes where we have none of those families. Mm. Um, so you'll be happy to be unemployed? I'd be happy to be unemployed <laughs> because that would mean that the job is done. Yeah. Um, in terms of genetics, um, often there's a family history of young deaths, and so there's been some investigation in the family, either clinical and or genetic, and so they'll know about a clinical condition that mm. runs in the family, like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, like long QT syndrome. So they have that awareness of the family history, and then they work it out themselves. Um, as I said, sadly, sometimes it's after a presentation of sudden death that we investigate the family and find out that one of the parents has the condition or a sibling has the condition, etc. I mean, the thing about sudden death is that we know how to stop sudden death. I told you two public health measures, which are mm-hmm. CPR and public, and public access to defibrillators, but for the individual patient, of course, we can use lifestyle modifications, we can use medications like beta blockers, and we can use implantable defibrillators in individual patients. So we can individually stop people dying suddenly and at a community. The big challenge is working out in a thousand people who's going to have a cardiac arrest. So risk stratification is still a work in progress, much better than it was 20 years ago, but still a work in progress. Yeah. So what do you think are the biggest advances in technology in the last, let's say, 20 to 30 years? Uh, in my area, there's no doubt it's the use of genetic technologies to diagnose disease. So 10 years ago, it would take me a year to study one gene. Wow. Whereas now I could take your blood today yeah. and have all 22,000 genes of yours on a USB stick or in the cloud in about four weeks. Wow, yeah. So the technology has far outstripped our knowledge. So for everyone out there that's interested in genetics... We've got enough information now, 22,000 bases of information or genes of informa- of um, analysis that we don't know a lot of their function at all. Uh, and so we're in the process of we're finding the genes, but then we're trying to work out what they actually mean. 
So that there is absolutely no doubt that genomics, we call it genomics now or whole genomes, has been a major advance in this field, not just in, in cardiology, in cancer, in prenatal diagnosis, in neuromuscular disease, in renal disease. Whatever specialty you choose, genomics will play a role in the restratification process or diagnosis process. And it's amazing that we've come so far because just before the interview we were talking, you told me how you started off your life writing letters, which is awesome, by the way. And, and now we're at the point where we're putting genetics on USBs. You know, it's crazy. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. I, I, would, I, I tell my medical students and my colleagues that if you ever wanted to do genetic sort of research, now's the best time to do it because there's nothing else to sequence. We're sequencing all the genes that we have. Mm. The question is now understanding what it all means and, yeah. and uh, exciting times. Yeah, sounds really cool. Now, in the next section, I want to address a few myths and rumours that surround cardiology. Uh, for example, one myth is that people think the heart is totally on the left-hand side of the body and it's not really that much on the left-hand side. It's in the mediastinum between the lungs. So what do you think is maybe the biggest stereotype or misconception that people have, let's say, when you go to dinner parties and people hear you're a cardiologist? About cardiologists yeah, or, or cardiology? Let's say either or both. Either or both. Um, well, I do think as a general medical sort of thing, people think, yeah, you go into medicine for money, and I think mm. that's it's that is a misconception. I think a lot of people don't do that. They do it because they love what they do and and want to help people. Um, I think the misconception about cardiology as a specialty is that we've we've done all the good work and we've cured disease because you look at all the mortality rates from mm. you know, acute myocardial infarction, everything's coming down. So people think that we've cured disease, but there's still a massive amount of heart disease. You know, beyond my research and my clinical work, but in terms of coronary artery disease, etc., where it's certainly not um, solved. And I mean, the two biggest issues in our society at the moment, um, at the moment are obesity and diabetes, and you know they're escalating in terms of their incidence. So I think a lot of people think they see things on TV where they open up arteries and you know unblock things, and they think, well, you know, this is this is this is you're curing disease, but I don't think we're anywhere near curing disease. There's still a lot lot there to, to work on. Right. So a little bit earlier in this interview, we randomly talked about psychiatry. Now, one of the psychiatrists claims is that psychiatry is good for people who want to explore the unknown. You know, there's so much we don't know about how the mind works, but that's not to say something like cardiology is all known. There is actually a lot left to discover, a lot of genetics, a lot of uh, disease that we don't yet know. Absolutely. There's, there's a, a real lot to learn. I guess the difference between psychiatry and, and cardiology is psychiatry is a bit out there in the sense that, you know, it's not an organ, it doesn't have blood going in, blood coming out. Whereas <laughs> yeah. the heart you can see, you yeah. can unblock, you can yeah. fix the valve. There's you can, more we can do. There's more we can do. But it doesn't cure disease. We don't yeah. cure disease. Um, in the genetic research area, there is a hope to cure disease through technologies such as CRISPR, which allows us to correct single base pair mm. gene changes in, in our genetic makeup with a goal to try and cure disease. So there is, a, there is a track there to try and cure some heart diseases. But in most situations where we palliate, but in a very good way, you know, we, we change the valve, we unblock the artery. Mm. So we, we're providing a lot more uh, life for the individual, but we're not curing disease. They still have coronary artery disease or valvular disease. Yeah, and just to clarify for anyone who's wondering about 
valves and surgery, that kind of thing. So cardiology is the medical aspect of the heart. And then there's cardiothoracic surgery for the, the grunt work, you could say, for the getting your hands dirty. Yep, and a yeah. very, very close collaboration between yeah. cardiology and cardiothoracic surgery. Mm. Uh, an essential relationship because we share patients all the time. Yeah, and you need both people as part of the team to actually get the work done. Yeah. Yeah. Now, another myth that people have is, oh, cardiology is all about curing heart attacks. Is, is that really what your work is? I think not from what we've talked about. <laughs> no, no. So heart attack is a very general term in itself. Mm. The media misused the word heart attack. Mm. I mean, heart attack really is a blockage of an artery leading to myocardial infarction. A cardiac arrest is not necessarily a blockage of an mm. artery. It's more, it could be a, an arrhythmia causing the cardiac yeah. arrest. So they're very different things. Heart attack is a very general term. Um, and I think that that confuses people sometimes in the in the common sort of lay population about what heart disease is all about. There's a lot of heart disease which is not heart attack per se, um, which we work on every day. Yeah. Mm. Now, one of the conceptions people have about respiratory is, oh, all these patients who are smoking, you know, they they question, oh, how much should we be helping them because have they brought this on themselves? And that's a whole controversial discussion right there. Now, some people might claim something similar about cardiology. You know, have these people got unhealthy lifestyles or some kind of um, predisposition which they've made for themselves which might you know induce some of these but I think from what we've talked about we can see firstly that cardiology is not all heart attacks in quotation marks and secondly there are lots of things that nobody brings on themselves like genetics and that kind of issue so yeah do you have any thoughts on that? I think the environment plays a role in almost every human disease Mm. and none of us are perfect. We're not all perfect weight, we're not all perfect exercise, we don't all smoke or not smoke. We do a lot of things which can impact on disease. Mm. I think as our jobs as clinicians is to be aware of those factors, those environmental factors, and encourage our patients, even if they smoke half the number of cigarettes for the next six months, at least that's a starting point. Yeah, that's an improvement. And uh, go from there. Yeah, because everyone just needs a little bit of help sometimes. And maybe some people haven't been told by anyone that they should stop smoking. So uh, I guess the attitude is more just one of help instead of uh, judgment. Now, one interesting thing I heard someone say once was, oh, one day stethoscopes will be kind of obsolete. You know, in the ideal world, everyone will just have an ultrasound and that's going to tell us a lot more about the heart than the stethoscope. Is there any truth to that claim? I've seen people using echoes at at the bedside, uh, these mini echoes. Mm. I saw it overseas when I was doing some work there. And uh, I think it's certainly a helpful device to have the echocardiogram. The stethoscope in the end is is almost the foundation of medicine in the sense that it's all about the clinical aspect of care. Um, I I think the stethoscope is is extremely important Mm. in diagnosing disease. I still think that. Uh, we do tend to use ECGs and echoes in a lot of patients to confirm our findings, but I think the, the stethoscope is the first step and I think that's important. Uh, I think it's also part of the relationship between the patient and the doctor. I mean, the patient almost wants you to, at some level, conduct a clinical examination mm. to assess them. It's part yeah. of the assessment. You take their history, you examine them, and then you go ahead and uh, do any appropriate investigation. So I think it's part of that process of clinical evaluation yeah. anyway. Part of the ritual of it. Part of the ritual. Yeah. And I mean, the lungs, listening to the lungs yeah. and listening for bruises over the neck and all that sort of stuff. So it's not just the heart you're listening to. There's a lot of other areas of the body you're listening to as well. Yeah, that's true. And with these skills like listening for particular heart sounds, particular gallops, particular rhythms, and reading ECGs, are these skills that 
everyone can learn or do you need to have a particular talent for interpreting the squiggles on an ECG to be a cardiologist? I tell all my students a monkey can work out an ECG <laughs> because it's pattern recognition. All of ECGs, 95% of ECGs mm. are pattern recognition, looking at the rhythm of the heart, looking for ST elevation or T-wave inversion. It's all routine after a while. Uh, so I would argue that you know, the clinical examination, listening to the heart, in the ECG is a basic of, of everyone's knowledge. I mean, even a neurologist, I think, could be able to look at an ECG and get the basic essence of what it shows. So I think it's almost an extension of the clinical examination, the ECG, and um, should be easily read by everyone. Yeah, and just some advice for people's first day as a doctor. What I've been told is the two things you should know is that you should bring a pen on your first day and you should know how to read an ECG. So two basic skills. Okay, now one final stereotype that people have is that music students and musicians can recognise heartbeats better than other people because they've got that sort of rhythmic training. Is that a myth or is there some fact to it? Um, I really hope that's a myth because <laughs> I have no musical real talent. I hear Taylor Swift playing in the background at home and other things. Um, I, I think... Like every aspect of medicine, it's training and mm. learning and repeating. Mm. You know, I tell my students that when you're listening to the heart, the first 100 patients you should see, listen to, are normal patients. Yep. Listen to your brother, your sister, your auntie, your, uh, you know, the normal people in the, in, the, in the office, that sort of thing, because you need to know what normal is before you sort of hear what abnormal is. So um, I don't think you need any special skills. <laughs> of, of, I, I really hope not because I'd be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> Awesome. So what it sounds like is if, if anyone's considering cardiology, it's all about having a passion for the heart, having a passion for the area of research that you might get into and clinical practice, focusing on the patient and just knowing that training is what makes it more than being able to play guitar or recognize Taylor Swift songs. <laughs> awesome. So just to finish off, what is the single best piece of advice that you would give to your younger self? Um, I think uh, it would be a combination of work hard. Uh, this is an unprepared question, by the way. I'm hearing it for the first time. <laughs> work hard. Uh, never give up on anything that you're doing. You know, there'll be hard times in your training. There'll be times where you think this is the worst thing ever. Mm. Uh, but never give up. And the third thing is you have to be passionate about what you do. If you're not passionate, you're not going to survive a career of 30 years, 40 years, 20 years if you don't love what you do. And I come back to what I said before, you have to love what you do. We've talked about cardiology today. That's my passion. That's what I absolutely love. I wake up every morning excited to come to work, uh, excited to see my patients, excited to see them walk out of the, the office mm. happier and a bit healthier and with a plan in place for their care, whatever it might be. And you, you have to be passionate about what you do. So cardiology, respiratory, neurology, even psychiatry, um, whatever you choose, be passionate about it and enjoy what you do uh, and be collaborative um, with, with people around you because in the end you're working as part of a team in everything that you do. Yeah, so that's an awesome inspirational message. So hopefully everyone who's listening also feels that same sense of energy. So thank you so much, Dr. Chris, for your time. My pleasure. Awesome. And we'll see all our listeners in the next episode.